80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Evergreen Productions. You can find this and several other fascinating podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. The biggest challenge I faced in, in my career was being at the helm when uh, my client lost a contract that it had uh, had for 75 years. We had to rebrand ourselves and convince the government that we deserved to win that contract again. No, my first job was a, uh, a six-month internship on Capitol Hill. The one claim to fame that I can still to this day point to is it, I was working for a member from Utah um, through the, a, a, a classic uh, you know, family connection, and uh, they were in the middle of putting in one of their statues into Statuary Hall in the Capitol, which if, if, if you don't know what that is, every state gets two statues in the Capitol building to highlight somebody historically from that state that has done something worth noting. And Utah did not have two people. And so at the time, I got the chance to, I was put in, in charge of, and you can't see the air quotes, but they're there, uh, <laughs> Drafting the, uh, the the statement to put the statue for Philo T. Farnsworth, oh, the yeah. man who made television possible. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. Today we're broadcasting from a relatively new place on Capitol Hill called Fight Club. Now, I know what that sounds like, right? But this is actually one of the, it's a rare pandemic success story. Fight Club is known for craft sandwiches, craft cocktails, and they literally started as a pop-up down the street at the start of the pandemic when Bukert's Saloon had to close down. Well, it became such a hit that they found a location here at 633 Pennsylvania Avenue Southeast. They've already made a name for themselves with a couple of their sandwiches. One of my, one of the favorites that I found is the chicken doink. It is a buttermilk chicken thigh with maple pancakes instead of bread. But even better than that, their heir to the BLT is an heirloom tomato, black pepper, bacon, BLT with pistachio butter and brown butter mayo. And it was listed as the from the Washington Post as one of the top 25 sandwiches in D.C. So I highly recommend coming to check this out. It's a cool little vibe. It's kind of small. It's got a nice bar. It's very decorative. And um, they want me to tell you that they have trivia night every Wednesday, but their big thing is tailgate weekends. They do tailgate watches on Saturdays, Sundays, and Monday nights. 
So if you're in the mood to grab a sandwich, have a drink, watch a game, try the Fight Club. We're also here because my guests today, and you heard me right, guests, it's the first time that we've had a twofer on 80 Proof Politics, have their office right across the street at the yard at 700 Penn. I want to welcome to the show Scott Suddeth, Bill Bates. Gentlemen, cheers. Cheers, Bill. It's great to be here. Great to have you. You know, Scott and Bill are two old friends from very different parts of my life. And these two have come together to start a new firm called Washington Navigators. And let's just kick it off with that. Tell us what you're trying to accomplish with this firm. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. This is a terrific spot. Uh, So we started Washington Navigators... What has it been, a year ago now? Just about a year. A year ago. So Scott and I talked about it probably for five or six years before that. That's right. Um, Sort of waiting to get to the the right spots in our careers and our lives. And the timing really came together for us. Get the kids out of the household. And, uh, you know, Bill, um, I guess, you know, look, what Washington Avenue, you know, there's so much noise. The noise level in Washington has just, uh, it seems like every year the decibels get higher and higher. And so our goal is to, frankly, uh, help uh, clients uh, separate the wheat from the chaff and to really figure out what's what's real and what's not and uh, what do you need to be concerned about. Or where are their opportunities? And even even in uh, as Congress becomes more and more gridlock, you know that the wheels of government still churn, uh, and so there are still opportunities. Uh, and so uh, we we have a lot of experience in working uh, across a wide spectrum of uh, companies, universities, nonprofit sector. And um, they all have business in this town. Yeah, you do have very different backgrounds. So let's talk about that for a sec. Scott, you've spent many years in higher ed. Bill, you've come from the the Council on Competitiveness, but you also worked on Capitol Hill and for a trade association. What is the synergy between those two backgrounds? I mean, I think a lot of it is just understanding how Washington works. One of the things that we talked about a lot when we were thinking of putting together this this firm was just trying to remember and recognize that those of us that live in Washington, work here, do this every day, a lot of the things that we take for granted are completely opaque to the average person outside of the Beltway. And it, it that's really sort of was one of the genesis of putting the firm together was the recognition that folks that are trying to understand what's happening here that know they should pay attention to Washington but you know either don't want to or don't have the time to don't have the staff that there was a you know an opportunity there for for Scott and I to provide those folks with some insight some some experience and really just you know, play on the word of our, the name of our firm, navigate them through this maze that uh, it just can be a, a mystery to, to folks that don't spend their days paying attention to it. You know, and whether that is uh, helping them identify funding opportunities or uh, opportunities to uh, influence uh, policy uh, or to avoid uh, gotcha moments. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of clients over the years that uh, have uh, been the subject of investigations, whether it's investigations by Congress or the uh, federal agency, 
Uh, and so, you know, helping them navigate that in a successful manner. Awesome. How are you trying to distinguish yourselves from the stable of other lobby firms in town? Well, certainly not on our looks. That's right. <laughs> That's all right. This is an audio-only podcast. That's right. The firm made for radio. We, uh, you know, the it relates to the, your earlier question about the complementary nature between the experience Scott and I have because we, I come out of a nonprofit background most recently, um, working with industry, working with national labs, with labor, people like that. Scott comes out of the academic background, but also some of the national security. So we, we have a big overlay uh, from a policy and an issue perspective. That uh, I was just going to say that, that, that I think begins to differentiate us, but it also enables Scott and I to, to work directly with a wide variety of clients. And that's sort of one of the key differentiators that we think Washington Navigators has is that it, it is Scott and I working directly with all of our clients. We don't have a, you know, at this point, we don't have a stable of associates or interns that, you know, as soon as we bring somebody in the door, we're like, want to introduce you to this person you've never met before. Right. It's, uh, you know, you're really just hiring Scott and I to be part of your team. And that's the way we sort of view yeah. ourselves. You know, we're also, well, as, as Bill said, our, our experience is pretty uh, broad and deep. Uh, uh, we've got uh, some nonprofit uh, clients that uh, are outside of the traditional realm of higher education. We have a couple of clients who are uh, nonprofit research organizations that are really not like academia. So it's yeah, it's diverse. It's a really interesting time in town because the you know the last couple of years there have been such huge investments uh, by the federal government in areas like energy and environment and climate and science that I think a lot of organizations, particularly mid-sized, smaller organizations that maybe didn't think there was an aspect to their business affected by Washington are taking a fresh look at it and, you know, wondering, hey, should we be take you know, part of this or should we be going after this grant or this contract or this opportunity? Uh, and that, I think, is creating a, a, a different sort of pathway for us. Take me back to that moment when you two talked about and decided to do this. How did that come down? Lunch, I'm thinking? Yeah, lunch. Yeah, uh, <laughs> lunch at uh, one of our little hangouts in, in town um, and where we were uh, brainstorming. And this was, uh, I think, as Bill alluded to, probably uh, four or five years ago. Um, and just kind of thinking about at some point uh, we'd like to do our we'd like to be our own boss and but we really enjoy uh, uh, this business uh, we uh, you know uh, you know we're dealing with uh, everything from providing access to education uh, for underserved populations to uh, being on the cutting edge of uh, research and innovation so um, these are great, great uh, areas to be involved in. Yeah, and I think, I think the pandemic was really a key yeah. Yeah. moment in, well, <laughs> for the entire country. But if we're looking selfishly just at our discussions and whether to f- break away from the organizational model and start our own firm, the pandemic sort of demonstrated the viability of working from home, working from the yard down the street from where we're having a drink right now, uh, and being able to provide service to clients, you know, regardless of whether or not we had, you know, a 
large mahogany paneled office, you know, with a gigantic conference room. Um, you know, we know we know we have access to that sort of facility if we need it. Uh, you know, what clients want to know is, are you accessible and available when they need you? Um, and whether that's from the home office or the the shared office space or the the bar we're sitting in now. Now, did either of you lose any sleep with the prospect of walking away from a salary? Uh, yeah, it was stressful. It was stressful. But I'll, but I'll tell you, the thing that held me back for the longest time was uh, was healthcare. Oh, and not sure. to get not to get into the nitty gritty of of the U.S. healthcare system, but the fact that you can now not have to worry about pre-existing conditions, and, and those of us at a certain age tend to have a pre-existing condition or two, it's, uh, it was really a, a great facilitator to know that, well, cost is still an issue, obviously. The fact that one can you know, get access to healthcare regardless of whether you're starting a new business, going off on your own, just you know, grabbing the exchange, that, that was a big factor. Um, so, so that removed some of the stress, knowing that that was, that was viable. But otherwise, yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons we delayed as long as we did was because it was easy to talk about and fun to talk about. But then when push came to shove and you start looking at your monthly bills and, uh, and things like that. But, yes. but to, and you said this earlier, Scott, I think the fact that you know, both of our, ch- our children are out of college or almost out of college, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, we're sort of over that hump here. Yeah. So it's, it's, it makes a difference. it's an opportunity both financially, but also from a time management, you know, we have the flexibility that, um, you know, that we are accessible to clients on a, a, a pretty much a nonstop basis when but, they need us. But I would uh, not be uh, forthcoming if I didn't tell you that, yes, I still lie awake at night wondering <laughs> about uh, uh, where the next uh, paycheck is coming from, but you know that's also a great motivator. Yeah, so, yeah. What's been your approach so far for trying to attract clients? You know, it's been uh, reaching out through our networks. Um, you know, I mean, it's been a you know we have we're not paying for advertising. We're not uh, you know buying time on the uh, during the commanders games or something, but. Uh, you know, because both of us have been in D.C. for, I think we've, we calculated at one point, almost 50 or 60 years combined. Um, I've been here role, 41, to be exact. I'm yeah. part of the problem. The, uh, <laughs> the good news of that is the Rolodex is yeah. fairly large. Yeah. What lessons have each of you brought to this new venture from previous experiences, previous approaches? What are you applying now? I'd love to build on something Scott was talking about because it, it really had an impact on me early in my career. When I first started working on Capitol Hill, one of the first lobbyists I ever met was a, a gentleman working for the pharmaceutical industry, which I, I know is a little out of vogue these days. But but he came in and to introduce himself, I think I was working late about 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, which if you work on the Hill is, is fairly typical for when you think about maybe wrapping your day up. But he had been at a, a, a reception on the hill, and he walked in with a beer, and he said, introduced himself and said, I brought you something, which, you know, was, was instantly, I wanted to know what he had to say. No. <laughs> it was, uh, but what struck me, and what, what le- the lesson that I learned at that point was, well, I was excited about the beer. He actually sat, and we talked for about 30 minutes in a very substantive, detailed way about and issue, you know, issues around health care and, you know, some legislation that I, the congresswoman I was working for was looking at. 
and what the implications of it that I just I had no idea about. And it was really struck me that the lesson I the lesson I took from that was to successfully advocate for somebody. It's it's nice to have the access and be able to say I can get you the meeting, but it's even more important if you can do that and have the substance as well and be able to not only walk in the door and say let me introduce you to so and so who can talk about the issue you care about. But in fact, you can sit there and say, thanks for taking the meeting. Now I want to talk to you about this esoteric you know, policy provision. And yes, I do understand what the acronyms mean, and let me explain those to you. Because you know, as both of you know, if a lot of people on Capitol Hill are fairly short-term, they're young, they're juggling 27 issues, uh, it's really important to be able to bring a, a substantive perspective and not just, to, not just show up at the meeting with a, with a one-pager. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. How have you guys seen the impact of social media change the nature of your business? Well, this is assuming that Twitter still exists. <laughs> and as of about an hour ago, I saw yeah. I was. Yeah. Check that. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's obviously a factor. It's something we're using from a, a marketing perspective and, a, you know, name recognition. But I also think it's, you know, our, our business is more of a, a personal nature. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the one-on-one meeting, and that's been part of the frustration of getting out of the pandemic mode is getting back to being able to see people face-to-face, read body language, get away from the Zoom call. I would add, uh, well, first of all, from a business uh, development point of view and also from just staying in touch with former colleagues and networking, LinkedIn is, uh, is, is pretty remarkable. But I would say about five or six years ago when I was in-house running a major you know, research university operation in a large state, with a very large delegation, we started to deploy social media quite a bit uh, in our advocacy uh, with uh, those members of Congress. And so I continue to advise our clients that um, it is an important medium for, you know, not necessarily, it's, it's not where you bring home a message, but it is where you can send a shout out to a member for whether it's visiting with some of your clients or if it's a shout out for you know co-sponsoring a bill or something uh, uh, so it's definitely a tool that uh, that you need to have in, in in your toolkit I want to ask each of you individually this so let's start with Scott think back in your previous experiences here in town 
Was there ever a challenge that you had to face that was either unanticipated or you felt was just too big of a hurdle to, to climb? Oh, I've uh, <clears throat> just which day of the week. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, pick one and tell us how you resolved that. The biggest challenge I faced in, in my career was being at the helm when uh, my client uh, lost a contract that it had uh, had for 75 years. And uh, we had to rebrand ourselves and convince the government that we deserved to win that contract again. And that involved uh, not only changing uh, some of our conduct, but also involved changing perceptions inside the Beltway mm -hmm. of who we were. And, you know, that, you know I, uh, we did a lot of focus groups, we did a lot of polling, we did a lot of uh, what is now called station domination in the metros of the rebranded who we are. Uh, and uh, I'm proud to say uh, we won that contract and, and my client went on to win it a, a second time. And so, uh, but that was an enormous challenge. And you know, it ha you, know you never wanna have, you lose lots of grants and contracts uh, when you're in this business, but uh, you know, this was one of the biggest uh, uh, you know, national security implications. Uh, you don't want to lose it on your watch, but you know, you uh, you regroup and you try to figure out what the message was that was being sent and address it, and uh, we did. Before we turn to Bill, let's take a few minutes and talk about what's involved with contract capture. <laughs> so we're talking now about uh, uh, what we call inside the Beltway the M&O contract world. This is mostly for managing uh, national labs through the Department of Energy and the NNSA. And um, every 7 to 12 years, the uh, department might, you know, every year the contractor gets a, a grade on how well they're doing. And after a number of years, uh, the Department of Energy may decide that they want to recompete the contract. And so uh, teams go out and form. Uh, you put together a capture manager, a proposal team. Uh, you know, this was recently done for Sandia National Lab, recently done for Los Alamos. We expect more competitions to come up in the future. And by the way, Washington Navigators has a lot of experience in this space. <laughs> if you're either interested in joining our team or, uh, you know, being considered on a team, now that's an important part of the capture, right? I mean, you are you're putting together a team that gives you a holistic, better, that's right, than even chance of getting the contract. That's right, and you know, and uh, and since many of these uh, contracts are uh, to either manage national labs or to manage facilities within the Department of Energy that have a significant research component, there are opportunities for universities to be. Uh, partners uh, in these uh, teams to address not only the research, but perhaps even more importantly, the workforce pipeline issues that uh, are out there at, throughout the Department of Energy complex. All right. And now, Mr. Bates. 
now that you've had time to think about it. Yeah, I'm going to take this in a very different direction here. So, obviously, we're a two-person operation right now. So, nonpartisanship or bipartisanship is, is critical to us. You know, we, we work both sides of the aisle. And I had an experience when I, when I left the Hill, because I came out of, of the Democratic side of the aisle when I worked on Capitol Hill. In fact, for a, a, a congresswoman who's fairly close to the, the outgoing Speaker of the House. And when I moved to the nonprofit sector, one of the big questions I was getting was, well, we're, we're a nonpartisan organization. You know, I know you came out of, of, out of politics, but, you know, it's really important to us that, you know, we... we convey a, a nonpartisan, bipartisan perspective, you know, is that, are you going to be comfortable with that? So I actually got a, uh, a good friend of ours who's somebody that, that, that we had known socially uh, to make a recommendation on my behalf to the, to the nonprofit I was working for, which is the Council on Competitiveness. And I have no idea what he said. I'm not going to drop names, but I will tell you that it is a recognizable name in very conservative circles. And he apparently made a phone call, and I had been working at the council for three years when I walked into the president's office one day, and she looked at me and she said, I just found something out about you. And I said, what? She said, you're a Democrat. <laughs> and I, I said to her, I said, I, well, I don't think I've tried to hide that fact, but am I, you know, is something wrong? And she's like... Your best recommendation was from somebody so far to the other side of the aisle, I just assumed you must come from that perspective. And I said, well, you know, yeah, it's that's a, that's part, a, part, part of the, uh, the old school of D.C. is being able to work across the aisle and to, uh, you know, to have good relationships that are not, uh, not defined by politics. That, that is so important. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's, it's absolutely the case. You, you, you can, you know, you have to kind of decide, do you play the partisan game or not? And you, you can certainly be successful at that. But, uh, and that may be appropriate for some organizations. Uh, but first of all, we've, I've spent most of my career representing nonprofits and nonpartisan uh, institutions. And so we make a habit of being nonpartisan and therefore being able to, whoever gets elected, our job is to figure out uh, how to communicate with them on behalf of our client. Yeah, I mean, we, we have clients yeah. from very conservative states yeah. and, and ver fairly liberal states. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we, yeah. uh, we have to walk in both those doors and, yeah. uh, and not have somebody look at us askance. Yeah. So, That's yeah. right. So far, so good. How do you guys prepare for our new incoming Congress? Well, you know, the first thing we do is, I mean, right now we have been telling our clients for uh, a, a couple of months that, you know, we need to start some strategic planning in uh, December and January. Uh, of course, we could anticipate some changes uh, on the Hill, but, you know, the, the deck chairs won't get settled until after the respective caucuses meet uh, in uh, early January, side committee assignments. Uh, and so we're trying to explain to our clients that, uh, you know, we want to start thinking now but then we have to overlay that with uh, 
who is uh, in on which committee uh, from your state, et cetera, et cetera. And so January and February, uh, we spend a lot of time uh, visiting our clients and having those conversations face-to-face. Uh, -face. Yeah, because by then you know the committee assignments and you can't have the seniority laid out, the staff ratios on committees, all that information. Hopefully, yeah, we should know by then. You just don't know yet. Bill? Bill. What was your first job in town? Was it at Cassidy? Was it on the Hill? No, my first job was a, uh, a six-month internship on Capitol Hill. Okay. While in college? Nope. Came right out of college, came down to D.C. to, uh, I was a political science history major, so D.C. made sense. So I, I came down to do an internship for, uh, I, I had a commitment that it would last at least six months, and uh, thought I'd try it out and see what happened, and yeah, 30 years later, here I am. Yeah, yeah I still haven't found the exit either, I understand that. What were your, what were your responsibilities as a wet behind the ears intern on Capitol Oh, the classic, you know, could you draft this letter, please? Uh, the one claim to fame that I can still to this day point to is it, I was working for a member from Utah um, through the, a, a, a classic, uh, you know, family connection. And uh, they were in the middle of putting in one of their statues into Statuary Hall in the Capitol, which if, if, if you don't know what that is, every state gets two statues in the Capitol building to highlight somebody historically from that state that has done something worth noting. And Utah did not have two people. And so at the time, I got the chance to, I was put in, in charge of, and you can't see the air quotes, but they're there. Uh, drafting the, uh, the the statement to put the statue for Philo T. Farnsworth. I was going to ask you if that was, because I can picture him holding That's the cathode right. ray tube. Exactly. Sure the yeah. man who made television possible. That's right. Uh, so that's that. That's what I remember from that internship. Yeah. That's yeah. something you'll take with you forever. That's exactly, great. exactly. So, yeah. So, if you, you know, interns can do very substantive things up on Capitol Hill. Did you stay on the Hill? No, no, then I went and worked for uh, a, a guy doing campaign consulting for, for a couple of years, which was a horrifying experience because I had, really had no idea what I was doing. And it, again, it was a sort of a one, two-person operation. And I mean, great excitement. I, you know, I got to, to go, go help on a couple cam congressional campaigns. We did a big bond issue up in New York State. I got to direct a, a commercial, even though I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> And there are stories there which I will not I will not sidetrack us with, but uh, but yeah, did that for a couple of years, and then ended up working for uh, Cassidy and Associates. Uh, and, what, and what did you do at Cassidy? Were you a classic research? Yep, started started the research role, and then moved up to, to working directly with clients for a few years, and and then and then from there, when I, I knew I wanted to work on Capitol Hill at some point, and uh, went from there to Capitol Hill. Fantastic. Yeah, you started on Capitol Hill, didn't you? Were you, did you start with Senator Benson? I did. I, uh, I, uh, six months after Ronald Reagan was elected president, I worked, went to work for the great Senator Lloyd Benson uh, on his legislative staff, and uh, that's where I got my start. And as, uh, I, was, uh, as I, I was at a graduation party uh, in Austin for a colleague of mine. We were all graduating from the University of Texas, and, and somebody asked me, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to work for Lloyd Benson. And they paused, and they looked at me, and they said, well, I don't know what you're doing next, because you're starting at the top. <laughs> Turns out they were right. That's great. You stayed on the Hill for how long? 
Well, total uh, 15 years, but uh, I came off. I was uh, torn between going to law school and business school, and uh, I first left uh, Senator Benson's office uh, for an opportunity to work uh, uh, in co corporate America, and I went to work for uh, AT&T right in their corporate headquarters in downtown New York. And this was right before divestiture. And uh, exciting opportunity, but you know, I'd been working for the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, so I kind of thought like I had fallen off the face of the earth. So I came back to Washington, went to law school. Uh, I had actually um, a new trade, a new electronics trade association had just started. And they asked me to become their executive director, and this was because uh, I had been doing some work. You know, Senator Benson had been very involved in both tax and trade issues, and this group hired hired me for because of my trade experience. And about three months in, uh, Senator Benson gets named to the uh, presidential ticket. Mm -hmm. Dukakis Benson. I turned in my resignation paper. Showed up at the. Uh, uh, Democratic convention in Atlanta in 1988 and uh, went on the presidential campaign to help my boss. And then uh, after that, went back to Capitol Hill's chief of staff uh, on the House side. Yeah, for Pete Guerin? For Pete Guerin, yes, sir. An old yep. favorite of mine. Yeah. Is there any greater transition between Capitol Hill and not Capitol Hill than needing to set up your own meetings? <laughs> you know, when you work on the hill, like your schedule just fills. Oh yeah, right. I mean, you you have to do nothing. Well, right. it's interesting because you're absolutely right. The, the first thing that uh, the 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 first feeling of angst and anxiety when you're off Capitol Hill is like, oh my God, how do I get this information? Right. Because right. you know it's at your fingertips. But I'll never forget uh, whenever you would go in and visit with uh, Senator Benson and tell him that you were thinking about making a change in your career, leaving, and if you were saying that you were going downtown, he'd look at you and say, well, I wish you good luck. You know, you don't get your phone calls returned as quickly downtown as you do here. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> sure right about that. <laughs> and then what prompted you to leave the Hill? that next time and what and then Bill I want to ask the same question of you so you know I had just finished law school <laughs> Pete Guerin used to look at me and sometimes and say you know I kind of envy your job you get all the perks I get but you don't have to make any of the hard votes <laughs> <laughs> but you know uh, I was a recent recently married so you know we're thinking about the next phase of our life and my alma mater was uh, shopping around Washington and saying that they thought that they needed to open a Washington office. And, uh, and they had come to interview several of us about uh, both members and senior staff about, you know, what should they, should they hire a law firm, should they open their own office, blah, blah, blah. As a result of, uh, of that, uh, those interrogatories, they decided uh, they were going to open a, their own office, and they uh, put out a, a job description. I went to uh, uh, my boss at the time and said, you know, I'm actually, 
I, I might be interested in that job. And he sort of said, well, if you're not, I am. <laughs> <laughs> not the last time he was considered by that university. That's true. Point out. That's right. But you, when you, so when you took That's that job, you were doing it out of Austin, right? Well, the uh, commitment was, and I, I totally agree with uh, Chancellor Cunningham and uh, Mike Millsap at the time. They're, they're, they thought that since this was so new to the university that they really needed the, to bring the faculty and the leadership of the university. They, they understood the need, yeah. but they wanted the faculty to understand and to learn the need. So they wanted the, the presence to be full-time in Austin for the first two years. But I do think it did help having that presence on campus and helping to uh, build uh, both understanding and uh, engagement and commitment from the faculty in the, in the, uh, in the uh, operation was, was critical. Well, you did a great job laying that predicate because that turned into 18 fabulous years for me. Well, I was going to say, uh, uh, I, uh, <clears throat> you, you took it to a whole new level. I mean, you know, I was uh, living out of a shoebox up here, uh, and you, you, you built it into a uh, sustainable institution and did a great job for the university. And both of us. Sustainable uh, might be debatable. Well, yeah, sustainable might. It's, well, we, short sightedness does come into play was, periodically. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> right. Yes. And Bill, you took a different path. So when you left the Hill, you went trade association. I did, I did, but the the, the rationale was actually very similar to, to Scott's situation. I had just had my uh, my first son, um, and uh, well on Capitol Hill, and you know we started thinking about you know my wife you know taking a, a little break from her career, and so uh, I began to look at the private sector opportunities, and the Congresswoman Eshoo, who I was working for, was on the uh, you know Commerce Committee, so uh, the uh, Trade Association dealing with telecom was looking for, for assistance and help, and so I, I applied, and, and that turned out to be a great opportunity because we got to meet. Yeah, you know, so, there, you there know. is a triangulation going on here. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Because that's at the point I was, was uh, telecom at that point. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, so. Which I helped divest and give you a lot there greater you go. responsibility. You see your time in New York. Here that's it comes right. around that's again. Right. Coming from Capitol Hill, to a trade association had to be a bit of a challenge. I've always said trade associations are death by a thousand paper cuts because you have to play to the lowest common denominator amongst your membership. Right? Oh, yeah. How did you navigate that system? You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I did navigate it successfully, but you're, you're right. I mean, the, any trade association, you know, has got challenges, but if you have more than two members in a trade association, you're going to have disagreements. And when you're sort of responsible for, for managing those and trying to come up with a coherent message that everybody will sign off on, uh, it's almost a fool's errand in, in many ways. And it can come down to who's paying the biggest dues. It can come down to, you know, who's got the biggest Washington presence. So, so yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that was a, a huge challenge to sort of wade into those waters and, you know, really kind of understand the dynamic there. But, but I would know, imagine that would put you in the position of having to walk away from some discussions. Yeah, I, I, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, and obviously, you know, knowing the members of Congress, uh, you know, some are, rep there are, there's a member representing all those people. 
and you know they you know the, the member representing the small business doesn't want to hear about the huge companies' issues and the challenges they have when they've got you know somebody that employs 20 people that they've known since high school uh, telling them that it's a that it's not the way it's that it's a different issue that it's a different challenge. So it, it's yeah, good point. I mean that, that that was a huge huge issue, and I think it still is. So I always like to ask my guests. Do you have a piece of salient advice that you like to give to young people just starting out here in town or maybe someone who's been here for a while and doing a career pivot? All right. I'll be really simple in, in mine, which is whatever you're sharing in your career pivot or sending to your network, read it twice, please. I cannot tell Speaking you. from experience? Oh, dry, what? Speaking from somebody that has tried to hire many, many people over the years, it is shocking to me the number of people that send emails and cover letters and resumes with typos. You know, I, I work for an organization called the Council on Competitiveness. I cannot tell you how many times I got a, res a cover letter from somebody that said, I am so excited to apply to the business roundtable. Oh, well, that's yeah. not just a typo. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. not, it's, it's just a, a lack of attention to detail. And, I, I, you know, if I had some advice to somebody starting out or, or looking for a career change, because the problem is it's so easy these days with all the, you know, the online applications to just sort of cut, paste, cut, paste, cut, paste, send, send, send. And I see that all the time, that it is so important still to take a breath and take a look at what you're sending and think about personalizing it and focusing on what is, you know, why do I want to send this resume? Why do I want to send this, this cover letter? And, and it makes a huge difference, it just makes such a difference. And I, and I see it, it, it dismissed so often as though people think that quantity is going to defeat quality, and it, it will not. You know, you've underscored a core tenet as well about Washington that even as digital as this town has become in its communications, it still is a communications town, and it's a town that relies on writing. And so writing skills are so valued, even if it's just email. But how many memos get written in this town? How many talking points? How many briefs to a, a position of power? That, that's a great point. And, you know, if you're an English major and you're thinking, why the hell was I an English major for the love of God? I can tell you, if you can write well and put together a coherent three-paragraph letter or memo, you're going to do okay. Because you know what? There's not much competition. You know, I had the, uh, well, first of all, I agree with everything you've said about well, of uh, course. the number. <laughs> well, of course, because you're my partner. That's right. Uh, you know, because, yes, you know, please, please double check that resume, double check that email. But, you know, I was fortunate uh, as an undergrad. I went to the University of Texas on a journalism scholarship. I worked for the Daily Texan. I had worked for several daily newspapers in Texas. I actually had a portfolio of news clips that I could bring with me when I was looking for a job. And they could see that I could write. And that's what got me in the door, yeah. is writing skills, communication skills. Yeah. So uh, true even today. And it's true even today. Uh, I would just add, uh, you know, for those who are looking for career change or look, look changes or looking for that first uh, opportunity, um, first of all, I remember someone taking the time to visit with me 
when I had no idea what I was doing. And so I still do that, and I encourage others to do that because you never know where these people will end up, and they're going to remember, they should remember and appreciate that first opportunity, that first chance they got. And also, of course, to just remember the basics, treat people the way you would hope and expect to be treated as well. I mean, some of our clients are the people that you took the time to have those conversations exactly. with that's right. 20 years ago. 20 years ago, that's right. Yeah, That's great advice on both fronts. Absolutely right. Okay, again, the name of the firm is Washington Navigators. You want to give us the URL? Uh, <clears throat> www.washnav.com W-A-S-H-N-A-V dot com. That's right. Great. Yes. Well, Bill... Scott, it's been great having you on 80 Proof. It's great catching up with both of you. Bill Shute, it's always good to see you. You're a great Texan, great Longhorn. And I just, you know, your golf swing disgusts me, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> that can be said about many aspects of my character. Thank you for having us on. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. And just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in D.C., whether you think the glass is half full or half empty... There's always room to fill your drink. Thanks for listening. All right. All right, man. Hey, nice. Enjoyed it. Thanks, buddy. Enjoyed it. 80-Proof Politics is brought to you by Evergreen Productions. You can find this and several other fascinating podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel.